Hello, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. So this is the first episode where uh, both iOS and Android uh, users can tune in and ask questions and so on. And uh, this has been a very, uh, very much asked for feature on Colin. So a lot of people have uh, been asking me when is an Android version going to be available and and so on. So I'm I'm so happy that finally uh, a whole new group of listeners can join in and uh, participate in these discussions. So I'm very excited about that. So uh, in this episode, we are going to talk about uh, this whole idea of value versus growth. Um, so if you look at uh, uh, the way in uh, people usually talk about investing in the media and in in the news and things like that. Uh, there is this whole idea that uh, investors can be grouped into two categories. Uh, either you're a value investor or you're a growth investor. And similarly, stocks and other investments, either something is a value stock or it is a growth stock. So uh, this is a very common way to uh, try and categorize investments and things like that as uh, Either it belongs in the value bucket or it will belongs in the growth bucket. And uh, Warren Buffett in his uh, 1992 letter to shareholders calls this, this whole separation into value and growth. He calls it fuzzy thinking. So he says this is not exactly the right logic to use. And the reason he gives is that he says the two approaches are joined at the hip. Growth is always a component in the calculation of value. And the importance of growth can range from negligible to enormous. And growth can be negative as well as positive. So um, these are some common uh, issues that uh, Buffett raised in his 1992 letter. he he says, um, well, so so one one thing he says is that you shouldn't look at just um, growth. So there are industries and there are companies where uh, their revenues are growing and their earnings are growing and their cash flows are growing and and things like that, but uh, they are earning such low returns on capital that the growth actually ends up destroying value for investors. And there are other industries and other companies where the returns on capital are so high that they are adding a lot of value uh, to investors. So if you own these companies, what happens is uh, growth actually benefits you as an owner. Um, So uh, Buffett says growth can be either a positive or a negative. So when does growth benefit owners and when does it hurt owners? Uh, What what exactly are the core concepts uh, here? So that's what this episode uh, is going to be about. It's going to explore this theme of uh, value versus growth. Now, there is some basic math that uh, investors have to know if they want to understand uh, this whole idea of what is value and what is growth and what is the interplay between value and growth. So there is some basic math here. There are uh, three or four fundamental concepts to understand. And 
I think every investor uh, should try and learn these concepts, uh, especially if you're a stock investor. Uh, so if, if you um, if, if you generally ask people, okay, why have stocks done so much better than bonds uh, over all these years? Uh, one of the important reasons that people give to explain why stocks have done better than bonds is this idea of growth, right? So if, if you go and buy an Apple bond, for example, uh, you, you may get paid something like a 2% interest on it. And uh, so, so for every $100 that you invest into this uh, Apple bond, you get a 2% uh, interest. So you get $2 in interest every year. Now, suppose Apple does very well. It sells a lot of iPhones and a lot of uh, services and things like that, and its earnings grow. Um, just because Apple does well, it doesn't mean that these bondholders are going to do well. Uh, Apple is still going to pay all, all these bondholders this exact uh, $2 uh, per, per year for every $100 invested. So just because Apple does well doesn't mean the bondholders get to uh, uh, get higher returns or something like that. But that's not the same for stockholders. So if Apple grows over time and Apple does well over time, uh, the stockholders in Apple will see all those benefits and the bondholders will not. And this is usually used as a reason to explain why stocks have done so much better than bonds because they benefit from growth. Uh, but here is Warren Buffett saying that growth is not always a benefit. Growth can sometimes hurt and sometimes help. So investors, especially investors in stocks, where um, the majority of the benefit of stocks over bonds uh, comes from growth and things like that, uh, we have to really understand what's going on here. Uh, when is growth a good thing? When is growth a bad thing? What are the fundamental concepts here? It's very important uh, for investors to understand. And uh, as always with any uh, any complicated subject like this, uh, it's generally a good idea to go back to the basics, the, the fundamentals. So uh, fundamentally, what is investing? Investing is we put in a certain amount of cash today to buy a stock or to invest into a business or buy a farm or real estate or whatever. We, we put some cash into, uh, into a venture today. And over the course of time, in the future, we want to take cash out of this venture. So if we put a certain amount of cash into a stock today and we just hold that stock, uh, that stock is going to pay us dividends over a period of time. And hopefully if the company grows and the earnings grow and so on, we will get a growing stream of dividends over time. And over a period of time, we will make more from the stock than what we paid for it. And we will get a good return on this investment. That's why we invest. So investing is the act of laying out cash today in the hope of getting more cash uh, in the future. Um, now, of course, uh, if we invest in a stock and uh, the market thinks the stock is very valuable and so on, uh, the, the value of the stock itself may go up and we may be able to sell at a profit. But that is not entirely in our control. We cannot control what the market is going to think of this stock uh, at a future date and so on. So, uh, for example, Facebook is a growing company. Uh, year after year, its earnings uh, have been growing. But uh, if you look at the market sentiment uh, on Facebook, uh, it's been all over the place. Uh, no, no, 
now for example the market views facebook as as a, as a very uh, ne- negative sort of company and uh, uh, it it slashed the market cap of uh, facebook by 250 billion dollars um, so e- even though facebook is a growing company and um, so so we we don't really have any control over what the market will do uh, to our stocks uh, but fundamental investing is we don't really worry about the market so we leave worrying about the market to the speculators fundamental investors what they will do is when they buy a stock they are only interested in how much the stock will pay in dividends how much the company will earn what the cash flows will look like and so on in in the future they don't really care what the market will think of the stock if the market thinks highly that's fine if the market doesn't think highly it's fine either way i put in a certain amount of money and by holding the stock i get back a certain amount of money over time from the stock as dividends and that's really all i care about that's fundamental investing so uh, to understand this uh, when is growth helpful and when is growth not helpful uh, it's it's usually useful to look at a couple of examples and one example that i love to uh, give investors uh, when i'm trying to explain this topic is uh, let, let's say we have two businesses uh, these businesses let let's call them a and b uh, very imaginative names for these businesses uh, let's say both businesses will earn 100 million dollars next year and let's say both businesses are available at a p ratio of 15 uh, on on next year's earnings so the companies will earn 100 million dollars uh, 15 pe that means uh, their market cap is 1.5 billion dollars each so both a and b they have the same earnings and they have the same market cap now in the case of a uh, there's going to be no growth suppose you know that a is never going to grow it's going to earn the same 100 million every single year whereas b is going to grow its earnings at 5% per year forever so this year uh, next next year b is going to earn 100 million the year after that it's going to earn 105 million and so on it's going to keep growing these earnings at 5% per year now both a and b are trading at exactly the same price 15 times earnings but with a you get no growth with b you get a 5% growth so does that automatically make b a better investment than a are you guaranteed that if you just buy and hold b you will do better than buying and holding a because you get this growth with b which is not present with a uh, the answer is no b is not necessarily always a better investment than a b could be a better investment or it may not be a better investment so it really depends on the cash flows that an owner can take out of the business over a period of time so let's do some simple analysis so uh, with a the cash flows are very easy to predict because there's no growth in the business so whatever uh, earnings the business has 100 million per year it's just going to return that 100 million back to owners let's say it's going to give it back to owners as a dividend so an owner uh, to buy this business today because uh, this business is trading at a 15 pe an owner can put in 1.5 billion dollars today to acquire this business a and then over a period of time uh, he can take out 100 million dollars each year out of this business so 1.5 billion goes in 100 billion comes out every year that is what the cash flows for an owner will look like 
And if you calculate the return of these cash flows, the IRR, uh, that's a 6.67% return. So if an owner um, just buys this business today for 1.5 billion and keeps taking out this 100 million every year, uh, that's a 6.67% return for the owner because 100 million is 6.67% of 1.5 billion. So that's very uh, simple to analyze. Uh, but if you look at B, B's cash flows, uh, uh, the business is growing at 5% per year. That uh, is a little harder to analyze. And why is it harder? Uh, that's because of a very important principle. The most important principle when it comes to growth is this. Growth is not free. Growth does not come free. Growth requires capital. So uh, if you take a business like Starbucks, for example, uh, they're they are talking about achieving a lot of growth in China over the next 10 years or something like that. But if they want to achieve this growth, if they want to sell more coffee in China to a larger number of people and so on, uh, what, what exactly will it take for Starbucks to achieve all this growth? Well, they have to go to a large number of new cities in China. Uh, they have to open new stores. And not only do they have to open new stores, they have to um, finance these stores. They have to put uh, coffee making machines and uh, furniture and decor in these stores and, and all those things. They have, to, uh, they have to make these stores appealing for people to come in and drink coffee or whatever. Um, all these stores require uh, lots of coffee beans to be stored in each store uh, because without coffee beans, these stores can't really sell coffee. So all this opening new stores and uh, uh, decorating them and uh, putting coffee beans in them and buying uh, machines for them, coffee machines for them, all that requires capital. So uh, Starbucks cannot just grow every year uh, without investing this capital. Starbucks has to invest this capital if it wants to achieve growth. And similarly, if you take a company like Tesla, uh, they want to sell more cars year after year. Uh, but if they want to sell more cars, they have to invest more in factories. They have to build more factories. They have to build production uh, capacity in these factories. Uh, they have to do a lot of uh, R&D to develop uh, new technologies for uh, future electric vehicles. They have to have a huge support organization. So all this requires capital. They have to invest enormous amounts of capital uh, into the business if they want to see enormous amounts of growth. So that's the most important concept. Growth is not free. It requires capital. And this capital uh, usually takes two forms traditionally. So uh, one form that this capital takes is working capital. That is receivables, inventory, things like that. Um, and the second form that this capital takes is fixed assets, buildings, factories, things like that. So when Starbucks puts uh, coffee beans in each store, uh, those coffee beans are counted as inventory. And those coffee beans cost money for Starbucks to buy. And the capital required for, the, for buying those coffee beans, uh, that, that goes into inventory. So uh, when Tesla builds a factory, similarly, um, all, all the... Um, the, the, the machines that go into the factories and so on, all that counts as fixed assets. Uh, so uh, all, all that takes a lot of capital and Tesla has to invest this capital if it wants to make and sell more cars. 
now there are some new age businesses. Uh, so traditionally, these are the two main forms of capital, working capital and fixed assets. But modern businesses uh, like software businesses and subscription businesses and so on, uh, a lot of people say that, oh, these are new businesses, modern businesses. They don't require any capital to grow. Uh, so they don't need any fixed assets because they are all software companies. They live in the metaverse or whatever. Um, they they don't need any working capital. There's no inventory. There's no coffee beans or anything like that at these businesses. So they don't require any capital to grow. That's what people say about these new businesses. Um, but I will ask the question, if they require no capital to grow, uh, then why are they not returning all their earnings to uh, investors? Why are they not giving investors big dividends? They, they don't need any capital. So why not just return all the capital to investors, right, as dividends? Um, the answer is no, they don't need any capital in the form of working capital or fixed assets. But they need a lot of capital in the form of sales and marketing, R&D, things like that. So uh, subscription businesses especially, uh, if they want to acquire new customers, they have to spend enormous amounts of money on uh, sales and marketing. And uh, this is called as customer acquisition cost. And so uh, the idea is that they spend money to acquire customers today. And then hopefully those customers over time will pay these businesses more uh, than what they cost to acquire. But this this whole idea of spending money to acquire customers is basically investing for growth. So even though the capital that is required for this growth is not uh, reported on the balance sheet because it's not a it's not working capital, it's not inventory, it's not fixed assets. So you don't see this capital anywhere on the balance sheet. But this growth does require capital, and uh, that that capital takes the form of either sales and marketing expenses or research and development expenses to develop new software products and things like that. So. Uh, these companies, these new age businesses, uh, growth is not free at these companies uh, either. Uh, growth does cost money, except that the capital that this growth uh, requires is not reported on the balance sheet. Uh, it goes through the income statement. Uh, so that's the only difference. The capital is still required to grow uh, for, for most businesses. Um, so that's the moral of the story. The growth is not free. Uh, okay, if it's not free, it requires capital, then there are two follow-on questions that we must ask. The first question is, okay, growth requires capital. How much capital does it require? That's the first question. Uh, the second question is, okay, uh, once we know how much capital this growth requires, the second question is, where is this capital going to come from? Uh, is it going to come from the owners? Is it going to come from some other sources, etc.? Uh, so these are the questions that we have to sort of answer if we want to understand uh, whether growth is going to add value or subtract value. So let's get back to our business B. So uh, we, we had two businesses, A and B, and uh, we said that B is going to grow earnings at 5% per year. So uh, it's, it's going to earn 100 million in earnings next year, and it's trading at a 1.5 billion market cap. Uh, now, uh, let's say um, to finance this growth, we now know that growth is not free. Um, so, so this growth requires capital. And let's say 90% of B's earnings are just going to go to finance this growth. So in, in the first year, uh, the business is going to earn 100 million, but 
it's going to take 90 million of these earnings and reinvest them back into the business. Why? Because it wants to grow the business at 5%. So if 90 million of the 100 million in earnings is reinvested back into the business, that means only 10 million is available to be taken out by the owners of the business. So in year one, owners will be able to get only a 10 million dividend, not a 100 million dividend. And in year two, what happens is, yes, there is growth. So the business now is not earning 100 million, it's now earning 105 million. But again, it's going to take 90% of this 105 million, which is 94.5 million and reinvest it back into the business. It needs that ongoing reinvestment because it needs the ongoing growth at 5%. Um, that leaves 10.5 million available for owners in the second year. So owners do better in the second year than in the first year. Uh, they keep getting 5% more in dividends each year. Uh, so so that, that's good for them. They can pull out more and more cash. Uh, but the overall amount of cash that they can pull is still fairly low. So if you look at A's cash flows, uh, uh, an owner would invest 1.5 billion and then he gets to take out 100 million every single year. But if you look at B's cash flows, uh, an owner puts in the same 1.5 billion uh, at the start. But in the first year, he doesn't get 100 million. He gets only 10 million. In the second year, he gets 10.5 million. In the third year, he gets 11.025 million and so on. So he gets a growing stream of earnings uh, that he can take out of the business. But then uh, the problem is he doesn't, uh, even this growing stream of earnings, it will take a long time for it to catch up to A. So now the question is, uh, what is the IRR of this stream of cash flows? So you, you put in 1.5 billion, uh, you get back 10 million in year one, 10.5 million in year two and so on, 5% growth every year. What's the IRR? of this stream of cash flows. What's the return? Uh, it turns out that the return is 5.67%. If you calculate the return, uh, you, you, you will get 5.67%. Um, and uh, that is worse than A. A returned 6.67%. Uh, B is returning only 5.67%. So uh, a, a B's return is worse than A's return, even though it's a growing business. So this shows that growth doesn't always add to value or uh, growth doesn't always produce better returns for investors. Uh, there is a quick formula to calculate this uh, this return, the, the IRR that an investor gets. And uh, so so if if a business earns, uh, if, if a business is able to give out a, a dividend yield today and that dividend is going to grow at a particular rate in the future, then uh, the IRR that an owner will get from investing in this business, uh, the formula is whatever the current dividend yield is, you have to add it to the growth. So for A, for example, uh, the current dividend yield is 100 million out of uh, 1.5 billion, that's 6.67%. So the current dividend yield is 6.67%, growth is zero. So uh, the IRR is 6.67%. For B, the current dividend yield is only 10 million. Uh, so uh, 10, 10 million out of 1.5 billion, that's only 0.67%. But that's a 5% growth. So if you take this 5% and add it to the 0.67%, you get 5.67%. That's the IRR. So you take whatever the current yield is, you add the growth to it. And that's the IRR that you can expect to get over a long period of time. That's the formula. And uh, this is a beautiful formula because it, uh, it shows the interplay between value and growth. So the current dividend yield, that is an indicator of value. So if you 
put in 1.5 billion dollars today to buy a business how much can you take out of the business today every year that's value and growth is uh, uh, the second part of the formula is growth so you you not only have to look at value but you also have to look at growth and that's why buffett says that growth and value are sort of joined at the hip uh, this is what he means uh, when when he says that he says you know when when you try to calculate what value you are getting from a business how much uh, return you will get from a business by buying it you have to consider growth as part of that calculation but just because a business grows doesn't mean it's going to give you better returns because what what is most important is how much cash flows can you take out of the business each year versus how much you put in now if the business requires a lot of capital to generate that growth then that means every dollar of capital that the business is going to consume to generate growth uh that dollar of capital is not available for investors to take out and so that may actually hurt investors rather than help them so in in b's case for example it required 90 million in capital uh to produce an extra 5 million of earnings so that's a return of only 5.56% so in this particular case uh growth is actually not really creating value but suppose we had a business uh say c which is uh you know uh which is not like b uh in that it doesn't have to retain as much capital so let's say c also grows at the same 5% per year that b does but c doesn't need to retain 90% of earnings let's say c returns uh, retains only 10% of earnings the remaining 90% is given back to owners so for a business like this um if if you just uh, look at year 1 in year 1 the business would earn 100 million same as b but it would not retain 90 million it will retain only 10 million it will give 90 million back to the owners similarly in year 2 that 90 million will grow by 5% uh Uh, to get 94.5 million and in year 3 the owners will get 99.225 million and and so on 5% growth every year uh if you look at c's irr uh that actually turns out to be 11% why because the current dividend yield is 90 million out of 1.5 billion which is 6% and then there's a 5% growth on top of that so 6 plus 5 is 11% so uh c actually returns 11% which is far superior to a's 6.67% or b's 5.67% so in in c's case because the growth doesn't require very much capital uh it actually adds an enormous amount of value to owners whereas in b's case because the growth required a lot of capital uh it doesn't add as much value to owners so this is the key concept to understand here uh that is the math of growth and value and if you want to learn more about this this topic i have uh, about uh, four resources that i will suggest that you go and read so the first thing of course is to go and read buffett's 1992 letter where he talks about uh, value and growth and the math of value and growth uh, the second uh, thing that i would recommend is uh, uh, professor michael moberson he's written this uh, beautiful 12 page article on exactly this topic the the title of the article is the math of value and growth and uh, the, if you just google the title of this article you'll find it it available so that that's a great thing to read if you want to understand more about this sort of thing uh, the third 
thing that I would recommend is uh, again a second article by Michael Mobison. Uh, he's written this article called One Job, which is basically uh, which which explains why these new age businesses, these modern businesses, why they don't require traditional capital in the form of uh, working capital or fixed assets, but still they require capital to achieve growth. Uh, and that capital goes through sales and marketing and it goes through R&D and so on. And so what adjustments do you need to make if you want to analyze these kinds of businesses? That's also a great read by Professor Mobosin. And then the fourth and final resource that I will recommend is, uh, uh, there's this guy called Joel Greenblatt and uh, he's a famous uh, investor. And uh, uh, he he has taken a, a class called uh, Special Situations in Columbia Business School. And one of the students in his class uh, took extensive notes uh, on, on this particular class. And then uh, uh, that student made these notes available for free. So these notes are about 300 pages long. But if you read uh, them, you will get a lot of insight into investing. For example, in one place, Joel, Bre Joel Greenblatt actually compares uh, the growth in Moody's versus the growth in Coca-Cola. And he says, look, Coca-Cola also achieves 12% growth and Moody's may also achieve 12% growth per year. But Coca-Cola may require much more capital than Moody's to achieve the same amount of growth. And it's because of this that $1 of earnings at Moody's is worth much more than $1 of earnings at Coca-Cola. And that's why Moody's is a better business than Coca-Cola. Uh, this, this is what Joel Greenblatt said. And you'll get a lot of insights like this if you just read uh, those, those 300 pages. But, but it's 300 pages, so it's, it's a read. But I think you'll get a lot of insights out of it. Uh, so that is basically everything that I wanted to touch on uh, today. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll be happy to uh, sort of take questions. So uh, the, the next caller uh, is Hao uh, Z. Uh, hi there. So I just want Hello. to um, ask about the volume and the growth in between the volume and growth. So there are companies with very low PE ratios, but I think in the short term, okay, let's, Put a Facebook as an example. It has very strong fundamentals, but in in the long term, the market is efficient, and in the short term, the the market is inefficient. But in the past five years, excluding excluding this drawdown in the recent drawdown, Facebook didn't outperform the QQQ index. So I think there's a reason why it has been cheap for so many years, even though it has a very strong fundamental. So I think there's some several factors that uh, several risks that fact uh, that factors into its valuation. Uh, th that is absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, so what exactly is the is the question here? Is, is it is it more of a question or more of a comment? Uh, a qu question. So I think when we look at the value, so don't we have to consider it the risk of the business? Oh, right? yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, when I when I talk about something like 5% growth every year or something like that, yeah. uh, it's it's a sort of a theoretical model where uh, the business is able to achieve 5% every single year. 
Yeah. Now, of course, there may be risks to the business and no no business lasts forever. Yeah. And sooner or later, uh, any any business that you take, uh, it's going to face uh, risks uh, of obsolescence and uh, risk of competition and, and so on. And uh, in Facebook's case, I, I don't know what exactly uh, uh, the risks are. Uh, I mean, uh, fa- Facebook is, is, a, is a kind of company where uh, the market typically, uh, sometimes it's very enthusiastic about Facebook and sometimes it's uh, very unenthusiastic about Facebook. Yeah. And uh, so, so uh, I'm not sure if um, the the change of sentiment in the market is an indication of risk or not. Uh, yeah. so, so short-term volatility is not necessarily an indicator of long-term risk. Uh, mm. uh, but that doesn't mean that just because there's uh, short-term volatility doesn't mean there's no long-term risk. So fa- yeah. Facebook face, faces a set of challenges, um, but you know uh, all all businesses face challenges. Yeah. So um, the 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 most important thing is uh, from from an investor standpoint, from a buy and hold fundamental investor standpoint, um, how much do you pay to acquire the business today? And over the life of the business, however long that life is, the life could be five years or 10 years or 100 years, over the life of the business, how much cash uh, can you take out of the business over a period of time? And if the cash you can take out is more than the cash you can put in, and if the cash you can take out gives you a reasonable return um, on, on the cash that you put in, then um, that, that's a good investment. Otherwise, it's not. Okay. It's it's very simple. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so I think that's all my questions. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so so um, do you have any more questions or is that it? Uh, you can continue to the next caller. Okay. Thank- so the next caller is Leonid. Can you hear me now? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Great. Um, so, guys, yeah, most most probably when you add to the call, there is a small. Uh, you have to actually accept your microphone. That was the same with me. So you have to just click accept microphone, then the uh, app will ask you to go through. So that is why most of the callers won't be able to speak. Um, thank oh. you, Diver. Thank you very much uh, for all your posts on the Twitter. Been enjoying them for a while now. Really great. Uh, stuff to read. Um, I'll they'll refer links and stuff uh, to the material. Thank you very much for what you're doing, and I hope I will be um, seeing more of the posts, more deep deep dives into taken taken K forms. Um, so, I to the past questions, just quick uh, overview to add um, that, like for example, a Facebook or some of the big names they've been. Um, First, many people being um, misunderstanding or misjudging the price on the open market and on their value and under like value of the equity itself, like fundamental value, right? How much money it potentially can return of the period of a year in terms of dividends, payouts, buy, uh, buybacks, um, etc. And the price is actually trade like open market. Um, 
they are in a big like there is no efficient market as it uh, even though such a term exists if their market would be all efficient we wouldn't have bubbles we wouldn't have um price uh price movements swings in a big mar- uh, market cap companies that like literally 200% within one year and then back like we see in Baidu or chinese name risks uh, as the second question was obviously they are in every company especially a big names because there's could be potentially a big market shift that changes the whole company valuation and future potential growth or uh, even questions of future existence uh, and it's like even such a big uh, fang companies are not safe from it because like why facebook uh, maybe one of the reasons it might be losing its value simply because its value can like um, we can equal its value to the amount of people who is participating on its platform. So if that amount of people decreases, that's when the value loses itself. So when there's certain controversy happened last year, uh, when the company lost a lot of its participants to other platforms, and they had to show it and state it on their 10K forms. Obviously, the market reacted and maybe overreacted. So there's always opportunity to get undervalued companies and always a risk of being being rock pulled on the companies that are just ex- exposed their risks and it showed on their 10K form later on. Um, my question is pretty... Um, pretty simple and straightforward is if it's possible, for example, to dive deeper into the small cap companies, because every um, every associate and every investment fund, mutual fund anywhere, they peering their gaze into big, large cap companies because they have a big liquidity enough to participate in such a names for those firms. But the smaller companies that are... Um, don't have enough liquidity and as a result, don't have enough interest from um, big funds. That's where um, potentially the big uh, like uh, investment opportunity lays. So uh, if you, the question to you, if you are being watching some of the smaller names, like we're talking about with the market cap under um, 200 million, and lower if if you do such a research or not. And if you do, why you do it? And if you don't, why you don't do that research? Thank you. Uh, right, absolutely. So these are all uh, great, great uh, set of remarks and also a wonderful question. Um, so uh, yes, absolutely. So what, what you say about efficient markets, um, it, I, I think it's it's largely true that markets are not uh, efficient. And uh, well, if if markets were efficient, then you probably won't see such huge swings uh, in, in, the, in the price of stocks and things like that um, in, uh, w- within a relatively short period of time when not, not, not much has changed uh, in the business. So uh, just because we, we see these uh, huge price swings, uh, that that itself may be an indication that the market is uh, inefficient. Um, but of course, at the same time, when you say the market is inefficient, the, the market may be inefficient and it may be very difficult to exploit this inefficiency. 
So just because the markets are inefficient, doesn't mean these inefficiencies are easy to exploit uh, by individual investors. So uh, that that is also possible. Uh, so so we should never um, um, we, we should give a lot of respect to the uh, to the markets uh, because they are very very hard to beat over a long period of time. Uh, uh, so so j- just to outperform the S and P five hundred over a long period of time, uh, it it requires uh, so much. Uh, so much of differentiated insight and um, so much of commitment and uh, so much intelligence and uh, such uh, such good temperament and so on. There's, there's a lot required to beat markets, even if they may be inefficient. Um, and yes, absolutely. When when you talk about companies like Facebook and uh, other other technology companies, there are always uh, risks asso- asso- associated with these companies. And uh, so you, you said that the value of Facebook can be measured uh, uh, based on the number of users. Um, and when the when there are other platforms, like, for example, TikTok or something like that, uh, that comes and steals uh, these users away from the Facebook platform, um, then there is a problem. Uh, and that, that is a, a perfectly valid view to have. Uh, so so uh, the, the, the whole... Um, so, so Facebook's users are not not really Facebook's customers. So Facebook is something like a two-sided uh, marketplace with network effects. So um, Facebook's customers, uh, the the revenues and cash flows and earnings of Facebook come from uh, people who advertise on Facebook. So these could be small small businesses and large businesses that advertise through Facebook. And why do these companies want to advertise uh, through Facebook? Simply because Facebook has the largest number of users and these companies want to reach as many people as possible with their advertising. And uh, so any anything that takes away users uh, from Facebook uh, is eventually going to hurt uh, the, the return for an advertiser. And that's why people should be concerned about uh, users going away from Facebook or something like that. Uh, but at the same time, um, that's not the only metric because, uh, you know, a, a user in um, in Myanmar or uh, something like that may be much, much less valuable uh, th- than a user uh, in the U.S. Um, so so ju- uh, an advertiser may pay much more uh, to, to reach uh, a user in the U.S. because uh, the user in the U.S. may, may uh, be more uh, able to spend on on products and things like that. So uh, not not all users are equal to Facebook uh, from a revenue generation standpoint and things like that. So it, it, it may not just be as simple as looking at the total number of users. Uh, uh, the, the question about small caps, well, uh, so you, you uh, yes, you, you're absolutely right that uh, everybody is looking at large companies. So if, if you take Google or um, Apple or any, any of these large companies, there are lots and lots of analysts uh, uh, on Wall Street and lots of uh, individual investors, lots of uh, um, um, fund managers and all, all these people looking at these companies trying to invest in them. And so uh, the theory is that because everybody is looking at these companies, uh, it, it's very hard for uh uh, discrepancy between price and value to exist uh, in the stocks of these companies. 
Now, there is that theory. But if you look at Apple just a few years ago, um, it, it, it was trading at something like uh, 10 times uh, earnings uh, if you take out the cash in the company. And uh, Buffett bought Apple at something like that. And he made more than $100 billion of profit uh, just by investing in Apple. So is that really uh, an efficient market? Uh, so if, if someone can uh, invest in the largest company in the world, which presumably is being looked at by all these analysts and all these investors are looking at it all the time and still make uh, a cool $100 billion <laughs> uh, on, on an investment of uh, some, something like uh, 30, 40 billion, I think. Um, so so is, is, is that really an indication that the market is efficient? Uh, so I, I think no, I, th I think there are opportunities that you can find in large companies and there are opportunities that you can find in small companies. Um, yes, small companies are much more likely to be overlooked uh, than large companies. So there are definitely not as many people looking at $200 million market cap companies uh, as there are looking at $2 trillion market, dollar, uh, market cap companies. Um, but, uh, you know, $200 million uh, com companies may may have an extra set of risks asso asso associated with them and things like that. Um, so when you have large companies, large companies usually have uh, a certain amount of scale advantages. So Apple, for example, has enormous scale advantages. And it's very easy, uh, it, it, it's very hard for somebody to come and uh, disrupt uh, all of Apple's many businesses. Whereas a $200 million company, a small company, uh, it may be much more vulnerable to competition or to some, some new, uh, new kind of technology uh, replacing its products and, and things like that. So uh, w when you invest in a small company, um, you, have to be, uh, you have to pay attention to whether the company actually has uh, a good moat, good durable competitive advantages because Otherwise, uh, the company may be earning a lot today, but those earnings may vanish tomorrow if it doesn't have uh, good uh, durable competitive advantages. Um, and the other thing you have to look at is in small companies, management is very important. Uh, whereas in, in large companies, uh, to, to an extent, um, they, they can get away with a certain amount of mismanagement. But, but small companies, usually, uh, the management is, is very, very key. And if you're not comfortable with the quality of the management or uh, if, if it looks like the managers are just uh, uh, putting their own interest uh, ahead of shareholders' interest and things like that, uh, then uh, you, you, you may not want to invest in, in, in a small company that has the, these kinds of uh, issues. But otherwise, uh, small companies are a, a, a great fertile ground for researching stocks and things like that. And the other key advantage is if you're a new investor, you're just uh, beginning to learn investing. Uh, reading the 10K or 10Q of a small company um, is usually a very good exercise compared to doing it for a large company because uh, these 10Ks for small companies, these businesses tend to be easier to understand. They tend to be simpler. Um, they, they don't have a whole lot of, uh, usually they don't have a whole lot of, uh, you know, stock-based compensation or any, any, any of these uh, uh, many different streams of businesses, each growing at a different rate or something like that. 
whereas if you want to take a, a large business like Amazon, it has so many parts to it and understanding it is a lot more difficult. Whereas if, if you take a much smaller business, uh, uh, a, a small market cap uh, business and try to analyze it, uh, it may actually be much, much easier to understand, like, like a small chain of restaurants or something like that. Uh, the economics may be much more easy to understand. So that, there's that advantage as well. Uh, so um, the, the next caller is uh, Jay Blair. Yes, 10K. Hello. Hello again. Um, thank you for doing this once again. Um, so in the same 1992 annual report, Warren Buffett says um, the following. He says, growth benefits investors only when the business in point can invest at incremental returns that are enticing. And that has a, raises a question. When he says incremental returns, does he mean the returns that's generated on the retained earnings, um, the difference between the retained earnings and the income, because the incremental returns to me sounds like the the excess retained earnings from say ten years ago to today, divided into the excess operating income or excess net income from ten years ago compared to today. Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, sure. So so when Buffett talks about incremental returns, uh, I think you're very close to the uh, to the concept here. So businesses, um, as I said, uh, growth is not free and growth re always requires uh, capital in some form or the other. And uh, so a company may earn $100 today um, and uh, that $100 may be earned on say, uh, $1,000 of uh, capital. So so the company has $1,000 of capital and it earns $100 on it. So that's a 10% 10, 10 return. Now, uh, the company um, may be able to take these uh, $100 of earnings and be able to reinvest that $100 at a higher rate of return than the 10% it earned on the $1,000. So if, if it takes these $100, and let's say it, it manages to invest them, uh, in, invest these $100 at a 20% return, which is higher than the 10% return. Then uh, next year, 20% uh, of this $100 is $20. So the next year, uh, the company will earn uh, $120. So uh, previously, in the, in the previous year, the company earned $100 on $1,000 of capital. So that's a return of 10%. But the next year, the company earns $120 and that $120 is earned only on $1,100 of capital. And uh, that, that is a return of 10.9%. So you can see that if the company is able to deploy incremental capital at a higher rate of return than legacy capital, then that, that over a period of time, that that will become a very valuable business. 
Right. Uh, but a lot of businesses are the reverse. So they earn very good returns on legacy capital that have been invested into the business, but they don't really have new ways to invest additional capital at those same high rates of return. So in, in these episodes, we've talked about uh, uh, Kraft Heinz in the past. So when, when Buffett described the business of Kraft Heinz, he said the business has $7 billion of capital. And on that $7 billion, it earned $6 billion pre-tax. And so that, that is something like a six out of seven is something like an 86% return on, on legacy capital. But if you take, uh, say, $7 billion of additional capital and put it into Kraft Heinz, the question is, will it be able to earn an additional $6 billion at the same 86% return? The answer is no, because yes, it could earn $6 billion on the first $7 billion. But if you put an additional $7 billion, it's not going to earn an additional $6 billion. Uh, it may be able to earn only an additional $1 billion. So the return on incremental capital in that case would be 1 out of 7, which is only a 14.2%, uh, which is not the same as 86%. So Buffett is um, very, very conscious of the fact that over a period of time, as the business improves or becomes worse, the return on legacy capital in already invested into the business and the return on new capital that is being committed to the business every year, those may be two completely different things. And an investor has to worry about both. Understood. Understood. And my, my, my final question is, he also mentions a part where he says, a dollar used to finance growth creates more than, more than a dollar in market value. That's when it's good. When a dollar used to finance growth creates more than a dollar in market value. Do you right. think it means intrinsic value and not market value? Because I find that confusing. Right, right. Uh, that, that's a very good question. And when I read Buffett's letters, this was a point that also confused me a little bit. So uh, what, what Buffett is saying is when, when a company, uh, for example, Berkshire owns Coca-Cola or uh, something like that, right? So when, when Coca-Cola earns $1 billion, it may not give out that entire $1 billion uh, to Berkshire as a dividend. Um, now, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, let's say that uh, Coca-Cola gives out only, say, say 500 million uh, out of that 1 billion. Then the, the remaining 500 million is retained by Coca-Cola. And what Buffett says is, this is like 500 million of my money that you're keeping. Uh, so as an owner, uh, I'm entitled to the full 1 billion that the company earned, but the company is not giving me this entire 1 billion now it's giving me only 500 million and the other 500 million it's keeping. Um, right. uh, and so um, is this thing good for me or bad for me? Well, that depends on what the company does with this 500 million. Now, if it uses this 500 million intelligently and if it invests, uh, if, if it buys more, uh, if, if it goes and acquires a smaller beverage maker or something like that, and uh, it, it, it gives that beverage maker worldwide distribution and is able to gain a lot of uh, uh, money from this, then that, that's a good thing. So over a period of time, this 500 million that was put into the company eventually becomes worth more than 500 million. And that worth is recognized by the market also as being worth more than 500 million. So that's a good thing. Uh, yeah. But um, the, the market, of course, is not under uh, Buffett's control or my control or, or anything like that. So uh, even after retaining this 500 million, the market may still think Coca-Cola is uh, not, not really a great business and uh, it may um, slash the price of Coca-Cola. 
so does that mean this 500 million uh, has uh, has been wasted or something like that not really uh, as long as coca cola invests this 500 million intelligently and over a period of time uh, let's say this 500 million is able to produce a 50 million uh, 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 in increased profits every year and those 50 million are distributed to owners every year so owners still get the benefit of that and that is an intrinsic value benefit and what buffett means when he says this is that over a long period of time uh, the market the growth in market value and the growth in intrinsic value of companies tend to be highly correlated to one another so if the intrinsic value of a company grows with time then uh, over a long period of time there's a very good chance that the market value will also grow at the same rate as uh, the intrinsic value so that's what he means when he says every dollar of retained earnings should contribute one at least one dollar of market value in the future um and that that sort of embodies the assumption that market value and intrinsic value will sort of be correlated to each other over a long period of time uh thank you very much sure sure uh, so, so the next uh, caller is uh, rehearts rehearts <laughs> is uh, now become a regular caller on the show yeah thank you thank you hello brody i have three questions uh sure. so first one is about um new companies like companies uh, without profit okay uh, well in my mind a return on capital is very important metric and um when i see that this company grows sales year 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 over year but it it also grows losses like losses grow year over year so it it is really not possible and tell me if my thinking is correct it is really not possible to to tell what is return on capital in such companies um i would need to wait till these companies become profitable and not only uh, slightly profitable i will need to wait till there's some stable level of profitability to find out if, uh, what is return on on, on capital is it is it correct uh well so uh, it really depends on the company in question so uh, there are many companies uh, that uh, give you a lot of disclosures so they may be making losses uh, at the moment but you have to sort of examine the financial statements to find out what is the reason for these losses now these uh, a lot of new companies uh, reason for the loss is that they are uh, spending almost every dollar of uh, uh, earnings or uh, almost every dollar of cash flows that they have they are spending it on acquiring new customers or some something like that right and so if you look at the income statement uh, these uh, these things which are actually investments if you, if you acquire a customer today and you spend 100 dollars to acquire this customer and let's say over over the next uh, uh, say uh, 10 years or so uh, this customer gives you back 50 dollars every year so it costs 100 dollar to acquire a customer but once this customer is acquired you can make 50 dollars of profit off of this customer every year for 10 years now that that is a very good rate of return uh, on this 100 dollars that is invested and some companies they make it easy for you to find out what the return on capital is 
uh, even though they may be reporting losses on the income statement, uh, these are not really uh, losses because um, an investment uh, in acquiring a customer, which is $100 or whatever, that has been reported as an expense. Now, ideally, what would happen is uh, this $100 of investment would be uh, capitalized over the life of the customer. So if a customer stays for 10 years with the company, uh, if, if you want to take this $100 of investment and um, uh, depreciate it over those 10 years, that would be only a $10 of expense. But uh, that's not the way accounting works. Uh, so if you, if you spend $100 on advertising or something like that to acquire a customer, you have to record $100 of expenses. You can't just record $10 of expenses saying this customer whom I acquired is going to last, is going to stay with me for the next 10 years. So I'm going to uh, only account for $10 of expenses. So of course, if you record $100 of expenses instead of $10 of expenses, uh, you may be reporting a loss, but that is uh, sort of an accounting loss. It's not a real loss in economic terms if these assumptions uh, happen to be true, if the customer manages to stay on for 10 years and if uh, you're able to make a $50 profit out of him every, 10, uh, every year for those 10 years and, and so on. So um, different companies, they give you different amounts of disclosure. So there are some companies that give you lots of disclosure about uh, uh, how much they're spending acquiring new customers, what their, uh, uh, what's the monthly revenue per customer, how much of that is uh, uh, operating profit. And they, they give you all these details that enable you to calculate uh, the, these kinds of return on capital. And there are other companies that are very secretive. They won't tell you anything. Uh, so, so uh, if you take a company like Apple and you want to try to find out what, what are the economics of Apple Music, for example, uh, it's a little hard to break it down uh, because Apple will only give you uh, some pertinent details. It may not give you all the details about uh, Apple Music subscribers. What does the churn look like and things like that? It won't tell you. So uh, it really depends on the company. If some companies make it easy to easy for investors to do some calculations and other companies make it hard for investors to do the same calculations. Okay, thank you. And then second question, uh, well, re relating to first question is in your um, uh, example of companies A and B, so company A uh, doesn't grow and company B grows, but uh, company A has a higher return on on investment. So my question is, well, uh, if, well, no comp, like we, we all understand that no company can grow forever, right? Like. So, <laughs> right. So, and, and, and uh, if um, this company B, let's say, hypothetically grows three years, five years or 10 years, and then it stops growing, right. and then it decides to return all profits as dividends to owners, it, it, it looks to me that this company B should be more profitable for starting, well, even, even now, if we know that it, it's, it, it will stop growing and from this point, it, it will return all, 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 all profit as dividends. Is it correct? Um, so I have not done the numbers, so I'm not huh? sure if that is correct or not. But yes, huh? the, the general principle uh, is is uh, definitely uh, on the right track, which is that uh, you have to look at what an owner will get over a period of time. 
um, from from the business. So if if a business manages to grow at five percent every year, like business B, but during this period of growth, uh, just to achieve this growth, the business needs to retain ninety percent of all earnings in the company. That means it gives out only ten percent of earnings back to owners. Then several years down the line, say 10, 10 years down the line, now let's say the opportunities for growth have dried up. There's no more um, uh, 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 there's no more reinvestment back into growing the business. At that time, um, the the owner will get back say 100% of all earnings back. So now what happens is uh, the owner who will get uh, $100 today if the company had no growth, Instead, uh, the owner gets only $10 today, but uh, let's say uh, 10 years down the line, that $100 uh, has been growing at, at 5%, right? So uh, that $100 uh, is now worth about $163, 10, 10 years down the line. And 10 years down the line, the company will get, uh, the, the owner will get $163 out of the company. Uh, so $163 is definitely better than getting 100 but it's 163 10 years down the line, not 163 now. So mm -hmm. you're now looking at comparing 163 10 years down the line with $100 now and forever. Now, uh, so you, you really have to do the present value uh, of, of those cash flows uh, calculation, uh, or you have to do an IRR calculation to find out which is better. Okay. And the last question is about... Um return on capital so um if i see for example i i can look at the return on capital uh for last 10 years and if i see that um return on capital is steadily slowly but steadily dropping going down is it fair to say that um one of uh, reasons why it's dropping it's because uh, return on legacy capital is higher than return on incremental capital. Uh, yes, I, I, I think that's a, um, so, so it, it also depends on how much capital is being retained by the by the business and so on. So uh, yeah, if, if the business is retaining capital every year, then uh, it's true that uh, if, if the return on capital comes down, it, it means that the return on new capital uh, is less than the return on legacy capital. Uh, but then the company may also be returning capital every year. It may not be retaining capital. It may be um, slowly uh, sort of returning more capital than it earns uh, every year. Then in, in this case, um, the, the legacy capital itself may be shrinking and the earnings may be shrinking. So you may be in a business that's, uh, that's in secular decline or something like that. So, um, a business in secular decline may may still uh, uh, give you a return on capital every year, but it's not adding any new capital to the business. So uh, there's no such thing as a return on incremental capital. Uh, uh -huh. It's just uh, giving you whatever earnings it can uh, manage to get, uh, but the business is in decline. So eventually you have to uh, factor in that uh, these earnings will probably stop after some time and and, and so on. So what's the easiest way to, 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 to tell if a company is investing incremental capital into, into, into something or not? Oh, if you look at the balance sheet, uh, mm -hmm. it, it will 
well so there are two two kinds of with, with the with a traditional business it's very easy to tell if a company is investing capital or not uh, you just look at the balance sheet uh, today versus the balance sheet one year ago and if you see that uh, inventory receivables all these assets have increased uh, then I, it probably means the company is uh, investing into its own operation or or fixed assets working capital and other fixed assets if if they've increased then it means uh, the company is invested uh, into itself now of course uh, those investments may not be uh, the owner's money so th- those investments may may come from issuing debt or something like that so you have to take that into account it's important to not just see what the new level of capital is but also where that capital came from but generally if the new level of capital is higher than the old level of capital it means the company is investing into itself but with these uh, new businesses um th- those investments are not really recorded on the uh, balance sheet so just looking at the balance sheet may not tell you very much so you you may have to go and look at the income statement and and then uh, figure out okay uh, this company reported uh, so much of uh, say r&d expense or uh, sales and marketing expense now how much of this is just to maintain the current earnings and how much of it is to grow the company and if the company is actually uh, achieving growth as a result of all these uh, marketing expenses and uh, uh, r&d expenses then yes it means the company is investing capital into itself in the form of r&d and marketing uh, to grow over a period of time uh, so for with new age businesses it's it's a little harder to tell whether they are reinvesting into themselves intelligently or not well, thank you very much thank you sure sure um i'll i'll take the next caller who's uh, navin hey tanke hey um uh, thanks for doing this uh, my question is on uh, your hypothetical uh, company a which seems to return all the capital just wanted to get your views on uh what is the best way to return capital is it dividends or is it buybacks or is it bonus shares or any other strategy um uh, which is the efficient way and uh, if you could explain with the uh, uh, c scandy uh, example i think c scandy typically falls into your uh, company a kind of structure which returns mo- most of its uh, earnings so right. uh, h- how does c scandy uh, uh, does this uh well so uh sea scandies when when buffett acquired it um it 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 earned only a small amount of money maybe maybe a few few million dollars uh, uh say, say 5 million or 6 million uh so, something of that order per year um and uh, if you if you look at the total chocolate market uh in in the in the us if if you look at uh um uh, the total chocolate market that that doesn't grow very much every year so if you look at how, how many pounds of chocolate are consumed every year in the us uh that 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 number from year to year does, doesn't grow very much and um sea scandy is also um uh, the the revenues uh, if you just look at how much uh, uh, the the pounds of chocolate uh, that sea scandy sold that, that those don't grow very much but uh, the nice thing about sea scandy is uh, it has pricing power so uh, i i know this first hand because i spend a lot of money on sea scandies every year <laughs> um, so so when, whenever i want to gift 
some somebody something uh, i usually give give them uh, sea candies and so so uh, every year um, the 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 price of 1 pound of uh, chocolate from seas uh, keeps increasing and uh, this business has pricing power because uh, you know i'm i'm still buying the chocolates every year even though the price is uh, increasing all the time <laughs> and there are a lot of people like me and and so um, seas candies on a fairly small amount of capital they don't require a whole lot of capital they don't require uh, too much in inventory or anything like that because they are selling chocolates and chocolates go bad fairly quickly and uh, so so they they are not going to keep around a whole lot of uh, inventory on the books and they don't have any receivables or anything like that because when when seas candy sells me a pound of uh, chocolate uh, i i pay for it uh, immediately right across uh, the counter so it's not like they are giving me the chocolate now and collecting money from me two months later or whatever so they have no receivables no inventory very little fixed assets you don't need a whole lot of assets to to you don't need large factories and things like that to make uh, chocolate like like seas candies uh, so so they have very modest capital requirements but very high returns on capital um but at the same time the avenues for growth in seas candies are fairly limited uh so sure they can open up new sea candy stores uh, that that is one way they can grow uh, but there is a um, because the total market is uh, the, the amount of chocolate sold in the us is not really increasing year after year or anything like that growth is kind of uh, fairly, fairly limited uh, growth comes largely by price increases and so uh, the, the company doesn't need a whole lot of capital uh, to grow and so what it does is it takes all these earnings uh just like our business a and gives them back uh to to its owners and in this case the owner of sea candies is berkshire hathaway so what uh sea candies does is it it takes all its earnings or most of its earnings and uh writes a check to berkshire hathaway uh, and uh, so buffett gets this this uh, enormous amount of money uh from sea candies which is increasing every year uh, and what buffett can do is uh, now he can take this money and he can invest it into something else which can take the capital so uh, say berkshire hathaway energy uh, or um, uh, geico or something something like that uh, where, where uh, or or bnsf uh, uh, the railroad so so these are businesses that can take capital and earn a decent return on it not sea candies like return but then sea candies cannot use all that capital so uh, so that that is really the the genius of uh, warren buffett is that he he makes money out of businesses that have growth and he also makes money out of businesses that don't have growth so geico is a business that has grown tremendously over the years sea candies is a business that has not grown that much over the years but he's made enormous amounts of money from both and part of it is because he's been able to pull capital out of businesses like sea candies and put it into businesses like geico and that that's how berkshire is grown organically all these years uh, so so yes you are very right that it it is a, a, a business a type situation and on the uh, uh, nuances of various ways of uh, returning the earnings oh yeah uh, so there are two main ways to return earnings um, I, i don't i don't really think bonus shares are a way to 
return earning it, it would have to depend on how the bonus shares are issued and, and so on so if the company is just going to issue a bunch of extra shares and give them to uh, investors I, I i'm not sure that counts as a return of capital uh, so let's let's just focus on two things dividends and buybacks i don't know a whole lot about bonus share uh, so with, with dividends, it's it's very straightforward. Uh, so so owners uh, get a chunk of the company's earnings back every year as a as a dividend, and that is a straightforward uh, return of capital. Uh, the buyback is a more complicated return of capital. So with a buyback, what happens is uh, there are two classes of shareholders. There are uh, so when a company buys back shares, it means somebody must be selling shares back to the company. So those guys who are selling shares back to the company, they are called the selling shareholders uh, because they, they are selling a part of their shares back to the company. Uh, then there are some uh, people who don't participate in the buybacks. So they, they own shares of the company, but they don't really uh, participate. Uh, they, they, they don't uh, give their shares back to the company when the company announces a kinds of shareholders here. There are the continuing shareholders and there are the selling shareholders. And the impact of a buyback on a, on a continuing shareholder uh, is different from the impact on a selling shareholder. So what really matters is the, is the price at which buybacks are done. So if you are a continuing shareholder, if you're not interested in selling your shares back to the company, then uh, you should hope for the company to be able to buy back the shares for as cheap as possible. Because um, the selling shareholders are the guys who are selling uh, back to the company at that cheap price. And uh, as a result of them selling their shares to the company, your ownership of the company's future earnings increases. And the more shares the company is able to retire, the more your future earnings uh, increase. But ultimately, uh, if you're going to be buying and holding these shares forever, if you're never going to sell these shares, then it's not enough if the company just keeps doing a buyback year after year. Sooner or later, it has to give you a dividend because otherwise the company will just keep retiring shares year after year, but you are not going to benefit from that because you don't sell any shares at all. And so uh, if, if the company never pays you a dividend, if it always does only a buyback, uh, then uh, eventually uh, the company will either run out of shares to buy or uh, eventually you will have to get a dividend. Uh, otherwise, the return on your investment is a, is a uh, negative 100% because you, you put in some money to buy shares and then you never get a dividend back from the company and you just continue holding these shares forever. Uh, so, so sooner or later, there has to be a dividend. And that, that's why the intrinsic value of a share is the present value of all the future dividends uh, that the company is going to pay on those shares. And the, the whole idea of a buyback is that you can increase those future dividends, but you can't forever keep doing just a buyback without ever doing a dividend. Because if you do that, then um, the, 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 any return that you get is, is, uh, is only a theoretical return. And you, you, never, uh, you, you never get, get back cash uh, from, from the company, which is not, not good. Uh, great explanation, Timke. A uh, couple of uh, very quick uh, minor questions uh, on this. Um, um, you you mentioned that C's 
uh, returns uh, earnings and it also um, grows its earnings by a price increases. Uh, compare, comparing this with Kraft, where uh, Buffett uh, commented that he overpaid for Kraft, and you right. currently mentioned that um, uh, Kraft has uh, a close to 80% uh, return of uh, capital each year. Right. Uh, uh the the difference uh, seems to be that craft doesn't uh, have the uh, pricing power to keep increasing prices uh, as compared to cs is that correct uh, sh- uh sure that that's correct craft definitely does not have the same level of pricing power that cs candies has but that may not be the see when when buffett bought craft he he knew that craft does not have the same level of pricing power that uh, that that cs has um i i think the whole idea here is buffett paid too much for craft so the business may be earning um say 6 billion dollars on 7 billion dollars of capital but buffett did not go and buy the business at 7 billion dollars if buffett bought the business for 7 billion and the business earned 6 billion every year he, buffett's return would be 86% per year that's a great return but buffett didn't buy the business at 7 billion buffett bought the business for something like 100 billion and so now his return is not nowhere near 86% it's it's something like 6% right if the if the business doesn't grow uh, then then the return is going to be 6% so a big part of why buffett's return from craft is not that good has to do with the price he paid uh, more than the pricing power that the business itself has great point thanks tinke sure uh, so then next caller is uh, casey and casey is also uh, regular on the show yeah hi tinke um couple questions about what you've talked about already so in your example a your company a you say the yield is 6.67% um because it returns 100% of its earnings each year it, the management knows that growth is not going to happen why even try let's just return 100% of our earnings are there any real world examples where that happens where companies are returning 100% of their earnings on a, for a long period of time uh sure there are plenty plenty of businesses like that in fact there are there are businesses where companies are returning more than 100% of their uh, earnings back so a- apple for example for several years now uh ha- has been returning uh, if if you count the dividends and the buybacks that the company has done and mm-hmm. if you take the operating uh, if you take the uh, reported earnings of the company from the income statement uh, the the sum of the dividends and the buybacks exceeds uh, the 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 reported uh, earnings of of the company uh, for, for a few years now so yes there are companies that uh, that return uh, well a very large part of their uh, earnings uh, back to owners each year uh, s- simply because they they have no way to reinvest these earnings or um, you know they, they 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 may just take the call that um, there are uh, they have ways to reinvest capital uh, back into their business but they're going to get that capital from other sources like debt or something like that so they are not going to use owners money for that they are going to return the owners money back to the owners and then they are going to reinvest in the business by issuing debt or um so- something like that right okay 
And then in, in the real world, with your example of company B, uh, no, no real management would take 90% or 90 million of their 100 million to only make 5% on, with 5% growth, right? They, they, they would return <laughs> back to their, to their investors, right? Well, it depends on the management. So, for example, um, if, you, if you look at um, uh, Berkshire, right? Uh, Berkshire retains 100% of earnings. It, it's not even 90%. It, yeah. uh, it, it, it never pays a dividend, right? And uh, until recently, what, what was it doing? It was taking these earnings and uh, a fairly large part of these earnings, uh, it, it was um, piling on the balance sheet, right? Um, and there are, there's Google and Facebook and all, all these tech companies. Uh, they they return 0%. Uh, uh, of their earnings to to shareholders. If they if they are not doing any buybacks, then the return is zero percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times they are just piling up cash on the balance sheet, and cash is earning uh, something close to zero percent today. So it's it's like taking earnings and then uh, retaining it, retaining a very large chunk of earnings, and earning zero percent on it. Right uh, now, of course, the hope is that sooner or later some opportunity will come where uh, th- these earnings can be uh, converted from cash into some other useful asset or be used to make an acquisition or something like that that's why these companies are retaining earnings not because they are reinvesting at uh, they they want to reinvest capital at 0% but there are lots of real life examples where um, you know company takes uh, uh, retains a lot of earnings and then goes and uh, makes some stupid acquisition or something like that, that actually destroys uh, uh, those, those earnings. So the company would actually be earning a negative return uh, right. on, on those retained earnings. So, so it's possible. So ideally, management wouldn't do things like that. But unfortunately, in practice, uh, it, it happens all too often. You said in the previous, with the previous caller, that a company needs to pay out dividends at some point. It's not good if they never pay out dividends. Well, Berkshire's never paid out dividends. So at right. some point, Berkshire throw out their hands and say, okay, we have so much cash, we pay out a dividend? Uh, yes, at some point, Berkshire will have to pay out a dividend. And uh, Warren Buffett has actually mentioned this uh, in one of his shareholder letters. So I think it was, his, uh, it was the 50th letter to shareholders or something like that, where he acknowledges that a company, so all, all businesses eventually die. And, uh, you know, Berkshire will also die at, at some point, hopefully in the distant future. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, and, well, well, I mean, uh, so, so eventually, you know, the, the earth will be yep. uh, swallowed up by the sun or whatever. And, and so, you know, unless we are an interplanetary species at that time. Yeah. There may be no Berkshire to speak of. <laughs> so so even, eventually, you know, the business will die. And so between the time the business is started and the time the business dies, if it never pays a dividend to shareholders, uh, then the intrinsic value of that business is uh, exactly zero, right? Um, so whatever money you spend uh, buying shares of that business, that money is 100% lost uh, because they, you never get anything back in return. Um, so uh, Buffett has also raised this possibility and he said that, uh, sure. Uh, so they, they still think that they can beat the S&P 500 by retaining earnings, but 
if it becomes clear that they have so much earnings that they can't beat the S&P 500 uh, by retaining it, then they will have to distribute it as a dividend. Gotcha. All right. And the last question was, I, I've been looking at a manufacturing company and we, you've talked about uh, reinvesting the money to, to make back more future earnings, like you, a, a versus B to 5% versus nothing. And so what is what is an average amount of R&D spent in relation to your operating expenses? Um, or, or what is an above average or what is below average? And I know it varies by industry, but in your mind, when you're looking at companies that make a product, a physical product, and you're looking right. at the R and D expense in your mind. What is a red flag? What is a good amount? What is a you know so on and so forth for R and D? So there are two kinds of R and D. Um, so there is one one type of R and D where uh, each year you have to spend an enormous amount uh, just to maintain your earnings. So if you take a company like Intel, for example, uh, it it has enormous amounts of R and D uh, expenses. And uh, which it uh, has to uh, spend on things like fabs and uh, uh, new, new technologies and things like that, new chip design initiatives and so on. Uh, but if it doesn't spend that R&D, next year earnings are going to drop precipitously. So uh, this R&D is kind of a, uh, something close to maintenance capital. Uh, the second type of R&D is R&D that actually achieves growth, not just maintenance. So um, I would view these two different kinds of R&D differently. And uh, so NVIDIA, for example, is a, is a company where the R&D uh, has actually managed to produce a lot of growth uh, uh, o- over the years. Now, of course, a certain part of the R&D for NVIDIA is also maintenance because they don't keep uh, investing to improve their chips. Uh, uh, sooner or later, the competition will become better than them, and so they won't be able to maintain their earnings. So, certain certain component is maintenance, but a, a big part of their R and D is uh, has resulted in an enormous amount of growth. So, I, I would treat the two kinds of R and D differently. Um, so, uh, and and I I would sort of look at the return on uh, the the R and D. So. If, if a company spends $1 billion in R&D, but then as a result of that, uh, it's able to make an extra $200 million each year, uh, that, that's a 20% return. So uh, I don't mind that the R&D expense is $1 billion um, if, if it produces a decent return on that $1 billion. So I think the correct question to ask is not just look at R&D as an expense, but to look at the return that a company gets from the R&D. No, of course, but, if the R&D is just used for maintenance, then it's largely an expense. It's not a, but if the R&D is used to fund growth, then you have to look at the return on it. But how do I, how do I differentiate the maintenance versus the growth? I'm looking at the financial statement right now, and it shows me R&D expense, $25 million this year, $24 million last year, $21 million last year. How do I know what amount was for maintenance and which was for growth? Well, has the, um, has the company been uh, growing at all uh, revenues and earnings and, and so on? Well, it, it it has, but how do I know that's accounted for in, from R and D? Maybe oh, just... that that is that's a hard uh, question. So you have to really understand the business. You sort of have to understand what exactly the R and D went into and things like that. And those details uh, sometimes they are available on the um, on on the ten k, but most of the time uh, companies tend to be very secretive about their R and D initiatives. So uh, I, I would say. If the company is investing, you know, similar amounts of money on R&D every year, 
uh, and uh, the the revenues are growing um, a reasonable assumption to make is that you know uh, part of the growth in in the revenues has something to do with the r and d um, but of course that may or may not be true in it really depends on the business in question sure all right thanks very much have a good week sure okay uh, so the the next caller is uh, is ganesh Hey, Tenke. Uh, hey. Uh, thanks for taking my call. So, just to give a bit of background, so my experience is I've primarily been a passive index investor for the past fifteen years or so, and now I'm trying to get into, you know, picking individual stocks, right? And that's part of what got me into your Twitter and the work you do. Thank you for that. Um, the, the so so I'm kind of at a point where I feel like I understand bits and pieces. of kind of the things that you're like talking about but don't right. really have like a fundamental bottom up view you know i know right. since since you're a computer scientist as well it's kind of like learning to solve a problem using like stack overflow and like googling it and not learning <laughs> from the fundamental authoritative text so i like, get right? analogy and then then you see that there are, and, and when i google around there are thousands of books So what would you recommend as someone could kind of start from a bottom up perspective around um, fundamentally thank so, you so uh, i would say read all the buffett's letters to start with uh, so uh, if if you can so uh, buffett if you just take the berkshire letters buffett has two sets of letters one is the partnership letters uh, and the second is the berkshire shareholder letters and these berkshire letters they start at uh, 1965 um, you can get a book that compiles all of them actually from amazon uh, so these letters started 1965 and uh, uh, they continued up to 2021 and uh, this uh, so usually a letter is out in february so the 2022 letter uh, should be around the corner uh, so uh, i i would say start with these letters so i have learned so much just from these letters they they cover almost every key concept in investing and so, so i would i would say start with these letters if you read one every day um, then it will take you roughly 2 months to complete this this project one letter a day and over the course of these 2 months you, you will learn so much about investing and you will learn more about um so, so the, the i mean it won't be a complete knowledge but uh you will learn, you you will learn more than what 90% of most investors know about investing um and uh, the, the areas where you feel you need to learn more about uh, you can always uh, you know try to find books on those specific areas for example if you want to improve your accounting knowledge uh, there are specific accounting books and things like that but if you want a broad overview of the most important concepts i would say just take buffett's letters and uh, read them from start to finish okay great thank you sure uh so the next caller uh, is just uh, gs uh so let's make gs the last caller uh, because we've uh, we've been here for about uh, an hour and uh, 40 minutes or so so uh, this is the last question uh 
Um, I, I think uh, you're on mute. Yeah, yes. I can hear you now. Okay. Uh, my, uh, thanks a lot for the great um, Twitter account. I've learned a lot. And just that uh, something that has confused me and I've been struggling with personally is measuring of the ROIIC. So I started looking at companies very differently after reading your Twitter and basically understanding what drives the future returns of the stock and it's primarily the return on incrementally invested capital. So even companies with high ROIC uh, are not great investments because they're just like a checking account. All their future cash flows are primarily given to buybacks and it just becomes a yield issue, right? And then what price you buy it and what free cash flow multiple you're paying for it. But if you're buying a company with high ROIIC, which is incrementally invested capital generates future growth, then right. your return is the sum of the, the growth plus the yield or the free right. cash flow, right? Right. So, right? so I've been trying to analyze companies by measuring their historical ROIIC, but there are a couple of issues. Is uh, One I'm struggling with is like, what's the period you use, right? Do you use five years? Do you use, because sometimes CAPEX has a, a long duration cycle. So you might be having high CAPEX in a couple of years with no growth. And then you may see a future growth like a few years later. Right. That one, one period, one is that. And the second question is, um, when do you, um, so sometimes the CAPEX, uh, the, the ROIC is an interesting formula because the, the capital invested is very easy to calculate and average of over five years is a good number, statistically uh, smoothed out number. But the, the numerator is the difference between the current year's return and the five years ago return. Let's say you choose a five-year period. And those two years could be outlier years. Either the current year could be a dead year, like a COVID year, or a very good year. And then your ROIC could look very different from year to year. Because yes, of absolutely. Choice of the year you use it. So how do, you, how do I attack those two problems? Uh, right, absolutely. So they're um, they're fairly uh, related um, problems. How how do you choose a time horizon, uh, and how do you pick the starting point and ending point of the time horizon that you choose? Uh, so so, so they are kind of related, and uh, uh, yes, absolutely. So there there are growth. Uh, so so we said that uh, um, va- uh, the value an investor gets, uh, the return an investor makes from uh, from a stock. It's going to be made up of two components. Uh, one is the current yield, and the second is growth. And uh, growth comes from uh, uh, growth itself uh, can be dissected into two components. Uh, um, so one of one of them is ROIIC, the the return on incremental invested capital, and the second thing is how much capital is incrementally invested. So uh, if if a business earns a very high ROIIC but uh, only puts a very small amount of capital at that high ROIIC, then uh, you, you don't really get uh, the, the benefits of the high ROIIC. Uh, but if the, if the company is able to reinvest a substantial chunk of its earnings at a high ROIIC, uh, then that is a much more valuable uh, business franchise to own. Right. Um, so, so that that is one important point. The second thing about the time horizon is, uh, yes, you are absolutely right that uh, uh, businesses' earnings go up and down, and uh, there are definitely years like uh, uh, the, the COVID year when a lot of earnings drop uh, precipitously, 
And so it's it's not exactly uh, easy to get an idea of what normal earnings power of a business looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, for some businesses, it's a little easier to estimate than others. Uh, so if you if you take a business like Starbucks, for example, um, the the economics of a single coffee shop uh, are not that difficult to understand. Uh, so so the the expenses are uh, you know you, you know what the expenses are there the rent and paying the baristas and buying coffee and things like that. Uh, and so if you open a particular coffee shop, you you have a reasonable idea of okay, wh- how much revenue can you expect out of a coffee shop in a particular location each year? And so how much profit you can make out of that? The, the, this is not so hard to estimate. But if you take a, a new business like, um, you know, um, lots of software businesses, um, for example, uh, if, you, if you take something like, uh, well, Pe- Peloton, for example, Pe- Peloton is not a software business, but uh, you know, there's absolutely no uh, visibility into, um, you know, how, how long a customer will stay at uh, Peloton and pay their monthly subscription fee or whatever. So if, if a customer stays with Peloton for uh, 10 years, then Peloton may be a great investment. But if a customer uh, uh, turns out after two years, uh, Peloton may be a terrible investment. So, so it, it's very, very hard to predict the, the unit economics of a company like Peloton. Uh, versus a company like Starbucks. Uh, so you should really try to understand the business in order to figure out what a normal year for the business looks like in steady state. And uh, for some businesses, a uh, normal year is relatively easy to uh, understand. And for other businesses, a normal year is uh, hard. So for mature businesses like Starbucks, uh, a normal year is uh, is more predictable, and for uh, immature businesses, it's it's harder. Um, and this is not uh, uh, this is not an easy problem. So even Warren Buffett uh, has has made mistakes uh, when he looked at a few years worth of earnings of a company and concluded that uh, yes, uh, this is uh, this company is going to make an enormous amount of money in the future because these uh, recent years look good. But it just turns out that these recent years turned out to be abnormally good years. Uh, so uh, he made a mistake like this with uh, with precision cast parts, for example. Um, so he, he admitted that when he looked at uh, the business and bought it for Berkshire, uh, he looked at a few years worth of earnings and return on capital and all that. And he came to the conclusion that this, this is a lovely business to buy. Um, but it turned out that those few years, the business was earning uh, well above its normal earning power. And uh, that became apparent only after he bought the business. So even a person who's as seasoned as Buffett can make mistakes in, uh, in figuring out the time horizon to use uh, to assess what the business's return on capital is and what its normal earning power is and, and so on. So generally, if you have a long period of history uh, as a guide and you can see where uh, the new uh, growth initiatives of the company are and what earnings uh, those initiatives are producing and things like that. And if you keep tabs on all this over a period of time, you 
uh, over a period of time, you build a better understanding of the business. Uh, and so you become better at estimating these things. But uh, e- even so, uh, after a lot of experience, you can still make mistakes. Very true. Yeah, I've been you know, screening like over 500 companies in, with this method and pretty much top 10, 12, top 15 companies today are all either home builders or something that's leveraged to housing like uh, furniture suppliers and uh, pretty much anything housing related has been doing so well and has been showing really good ROIS each trading at around 10, 11 times earnings. So they look very cheap and very good, but you right. know that you're looking at a cyclical company at the end of the day. So. Uh, right. Absolutely. So uh, when, when, when the price of homes uh, increases a lot, uh, home builders uh, uh, stand to make uh, more money, uh, if, if they, especially if they have a lot of uh, inventory and things like that. So uh, right. if, if a home builder uh, bought inventory at historical cost, but is able to use that inventory to build a house and sell it at uh, an inflated price, uh, that's a lot of profit. But, um, you know, they have to replace that. So next year's profit may, may not look as good as uh, this year's profit. And uh, so, so uh, a home builder can can look very cheap on a price to earnings basis or something like that, but that that may be simply because the earnings are overstated. And uh, so, if you if you applied a more normal level of earnings, the price to earnings suddenly um, may not look all that attractive. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Uh, So thank you all very much for showing up and uh, for listening patiently to the call. I enjoyed this very much and uh, I hope it was useful to you as well to understand uh, what exactly the interplay is between value and growth and when is growth good and when is growth uh, not good and and so on. All these finer points about uh, the the interplay between value and growth. Um, So if if you found this useful, please share it with your friends. There's now an Android app and, uh, you know, anybody can tune in uh, every every weekend. We try to do this. And the goal is just to learn from each other and to uh, become better at investing over time. So uh, if you want to recommend this show to your friends, uh, please go ahead and do so. Um, so see you next week uh, at the same time. Thank you very much. Bye bye.